Let us take out our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 19. We are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew tonight, and we shall continue next month as well in the evening worship of God. And I anticipate three messages coming from 12 verses. Matthew 19, 1 through 12. And it is certainly true. I could preach one message from these 12 verses. But I'm, I'm reading the room, so to speak. And I don't mean this room. I mean the room of the 21st century. That we are fast moving into a post-marriage world because we are moving into a post-human world. Because even before that, we've moved into a post-modern world. So I'm going to give a little more attention to the Word of God as it concerns creation, man, woman, and marriage. And that will take three messages. One tonight, and then we'll have a week off, of course, first Sunday of March, and then two right after we come back. Let us pray and then read the word of God. Father, we thank you, we praise you. We bless and adore you, Lord, that you are so gracious to us to let us understand your word and to recognize the voice of the master and to find herein with with faith and recognize the authority that we see in the word of God. It is your authority. You are speaking. You are telling the truth. We thank you for the prophets and apostles and the final revelation of God, the Son, our Savior, Jesus. Father, we do pray tonight, as your word is publicly read and preached, that you would once again help us, grant to us faith, so that we would also be granted understanding. And grant to us understanding, so that we would also be granted conviction. And grant us conviction so that we would also be granted courage. And grant us courage so that we would also endure suffering. And Lord, grant us suffering so that we would also rejoice. For in those sufferings, we recognize our fellowship in the suffering Savior, who found not his home here in the present evil age, but above. And Lord, we thank you that even in our sufferings, he testifies to us that we are with him. We are united to him. We shall not be forsaken by him. And we shall indeed attain the glory that awaits us through him. We ask all this tonight in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 19, verse 1 through six. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning 
made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now turn with me for an Old Testament reading to Deuteronomy 24. Keep your finger where we just were. And let us read four verses here, the primary text that the Pharisees had in mind when they asked this question. Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. God's word. Back to Matthew 19. And we won't get too far tonight to Matthew 19. But be of good cheer. We will get further. In his 1965 book, The Problem of God, author John Courtney Murray has a very insightful analysis of postmodern man. He describes how such men have a strong need to affirm the absence of God. Here's Murray. The postmodern man says that God must be absent. He asserts his fundamental will that God should be absent. The reason is obvious. If God is present, man is being made by God, and he is being made a man, a being with an essence and a nature. Therefore, man is not free to make himself ex nihilo, out of nothingness. If God is present, man's existence is transformed into a destiny he himself did not choose. Then Murray presses down especially hard on the wishes of modern man. Quote, if God is present, if he is thus engaged as the higher freedom in man's historical existence, man cannot exist. The living God is the death of man. And of course, Murray is using an expression there, how men would see the bondage of having to yield to a creator. Now this is why the revelation of God in scripture and the revelation of God in nature is so opposed by modern man. A true knowledge of God reminds us that it is God who has determined what we should be. We are not self-determined beings. It is God who decided we should be man. It is God who decided we should be either male or female. 
Because God does exist, we are bound by the choice of another. But happy are those who rest and are still within the choice of another. Murray is right. This is the higher freedom. God alone is free to choose what we are, what the world is, what human nature is, and it is God's choice alone that opens to us a world of freedom. We get to stop striving. We get to stop self-determining. We get to stop recreating. We get to receive. It is the most pleasant and restful existence to have God choose what you are and tell you what you are. This, of course, has much to do with marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman is a fundamental reality because God is not absent. God is present. In fact, in the beginning, God created them male and female, and he did so not so there would be universal marriage, but so there would be much marriage. That's why he created them male and female. But we are rapidly entering into marriage winter. And who knows when the white witch will let us out. And if you recognize your Narnia, you know I'm referring to Lewis's work. Here is a statistic that hit me like a winter snowstorm, a bucket of cold water, a slap across the face. I just read this statistic in the New York Times this week. University of Virginia professor Brad Wilcox says the marriage rate is close to the lowest level in American history. For example, in 1980, how old were you in 1980? In 1980, only 6% of 40-year-olds had never been married. 6%. Only 6% of 40-year-olds had never been married in 1980. As of 2021... 25% of 40-year-olds have never been married. What is happening? Professor Wilcox points to data like this. 75% of adults ages 18 to 40 said that making a good living is crucial to fulfillment in life, while only 32% thought marriage was crucial to fulfillment. What is happening? Well, in our post-human dystopian present, it's it's not post-human dystopian future anymore, man is living more and more as if God is absent. Man is deciding for himself, ex nihilo, that fulfillment is found in a techno-economic bio-libertarian system with its ever-changing indicators of success instead of fulfillment being found in the choices God has made for man. Which brings us to our text this evening. Because of our Lord's great love for us, and oh, how much he loves us. Oh, how much the Lord loves us to bring us out of the dark. Especially when we are 
quickly wandering back into it the moment he takes his hand off our shoulder. He loves us to bring us out of the dark. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, leads us back into reality in our text tonight. The reality that, one, God made us. Two, the reality that God has made one another for us. God has made us male and female, and God made us for marriage. We may not all get married. We may not all get married in our 20s. We may not all be married only once, but make no mistake, to enter into the higher freedom of God's being present and God's choice of reality, marriage between one man and one woman will be that which we all are committed to, even if we do not all participate of it the exact same way. So when the author of Hebrews says, let the marriage bed not be defiled, he's not only referring to those who are married. He's referring to every child of God who is under the authority of Jesus Christ that we all have a duty to not defile the marriage bed. Because marriage is the determined determined creation of God for the good of his people. The reason the subject of marriage, then, emerges where it does in our text tonight, Matthew 19, is because the Pharisees have come to trick our Savior. As verse 1 says, Jesus has entered the region of Judea. Our Lord is on his long and his final pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which he had announced earlier to his disciples. You recall back in chapter 16, when Peter protested, and our Lord said, you have your mind set on the things of man and not on the things of God. Get thee behind me, Satan. In that dialogue, the Lord had just announced that he is now on his journey to Jerusalem. And it began there. And he is now making his ascent geographically. It's an upward hike to the city of Jerusalem. The Lord has entered into the region of Judea, And there he will be turned over at Jerusalem to the scribes and chief priests, and they will condemn him to death. So as our Lord comes closer to Jerusalem, different leaders of Jerusalem start coming to him to oppose him. Their whole purpose is to strengthen the opposition against him, so killing him seems more and more reasonable to all who will take a part in it. Their first question then, about divorce is a question designed as a test. They want our Lord to take a public position on divorce law recorded by Moses in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Why do they want this? Because there were two rabbinical schools at the time who were especially known for their opposing positions on divorce the school of Hillel, and the school of Shammai. The school of Hillel was very relaxed on the grounds for which a man could divorce his wife. The school of Hillel allowed for divorce, as John Gill says, for very trifling things. If she spoiled her husband's food by over-roasting, over-salting, 
or if he found another woman that was more beautiful than her. The school of Hillel said, feel free to give her a writ of divorce and start again. The school of Shammai, however, only allowed for divorce if the wife committed adultery. So the whole purpose of the question that comes to our Lord then is a test, a trap, a trick. They wanted to get Jesus to choose against one of these two rabbinical schools. Or perhaps they wanted to get him to answer in such a way that they could argue he spoke against Moses and Deuteronomy 24. Whatever their precise trick was about, their great wish was to create resentment toward our Lord by some group or another and thus add enemies to him. And this, of course, is going to get thicker the closer he gets to Jerusalem. And when he enters into Jerusalem for that final week of his passion, his suffering, the thickness of resentment politics against him is on full tilt. They're trying to shore up the resolute cause of murdering him among the scribes and the chief priests. So understand what our Lord is doing here. He is telling the truth at the cost of his life. Everything he teaches here to these Pharisees will bring some measure him closer to his death, will bring recrimination, will bring hardening lines of resentment, will shore up the power brokers who will bring about his execution in Jerusalem. He is telling the truth, though. He's not shrinking from this question. He is no longer evading his opponents, for his hour is nigh, and he's going into the lion's den. And he's telling the truth so that you, you, beloved, could be redeemed, and so that you, beloved, could be shepherded by his word. It cost him his life to tell the truth. All so that you and I could have his blood cover us and have his truth within us. Okay. So, how does our Lord answer the question? He answers with a total rejection of divorce. That's how he answers. He does not side with Hillel. He does not side with Shammai. He offers no grounds for divorce at all, at first anyway. He will indeed add the exception clause down at verse 9, but he does not add it in his first answer on, on, for very deliberate reasons, as we shall see. No grounds at all for any man or woman separating what God has joined together. We should read our Lord's answer the way he gave it. Read it and stop before you get to the next question. He deliberately brings nothing exception, no exceptions into it, as he answers. So he states quite emphatically that the separation of a marriage union by the will of man is a violation of what God has created. There simply is no basis for divorce in our Lord's opening answer. If we doubt this, 
If we doubt this is what Jesus is saying, we need only observe how the Pharisees standing there understood him. Our Lord's absolute statement is what provokes the understandable objection of the Pharisees in verse 7. Alarmed at what he has just said, they point to Deuteronomy 24. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus was totally rejecting divorce in his first answer, and they couldn't believe it. It made them wonder if he was reading his own Bible. And so they pull Deuteronomy 24 in their next question. What about Moses, Jesus? Well, we're going to get to that, but not tonight. How can our Lord start with a total rejection of divorce? New Testament scholar R.T. France is very helpful here. He says, Jesus raises a fundamentally important hermeneutical issue. He finds within the Pentateuch two different levels of ethical instruction. In Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, we find a pragmatic provision for dealing with a problem that has arisen. But in Genesis 1 and 2, we find a positive statement of first principles, which, if observed, would have rendered the troubleshooting legislation of Deuteronomy 24 unnecessary. Here's the point. In our Lord's answer to the first question, the trick question, he is showing them that the original principle of Genesis 1 and 2 takes precedence over the later concession to human weakness. To start with the divorce provisions in Deuteronomy 24 was starting in the wrong place. But that's where the Pharisees and the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai started. They started with the provisions of the fall. They started with the provisions of man's sin. The Pharisees take Deuteronomy 24 passage as a commandment. Jesus will take that same passage only as a permission. And this is our Lord's great corrective to all who will come after him as disciples. His kingdom rule of salvation does not pursue a legalistic ethical system where we are fixated on what is permitted once things have gone wrong. The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, his rule of salvation, which is a synonymous phrase for his kingdom, his rule of salvation that he has taken us captive into by grace restores the image of God in man through the Spirit, in union with the risen Christ, empowering us as new creatures in Christ to live up to the original purpose of God in marriage. It is abject, fleshy legalism to build your ethical system as a Christian around all of the rules of permission once things have gone wrong. 
The Lord is teaching us that as restored image bearers, we are to pursue the purpose of creation because the new creation is now ours and we are part of it. (coughs) Excuse me. Just a couple more things tonight. (coughs) In our Lord's answer to these Pharisees, which is all taken out of the first two chapters of Genesis, he really lays down the truth for us about marriage. And he lays it down, beloved, in ways that the leadership of Israel was not talking about marriage. When they got together to discuss the propriety of a divorce, when they got together and discussed marriage, whether it was a formal meeting or an informal meeting, do you know how they talked about marriage? Well, Simon, I don't know if, I don't know if you can divorce her for ripping your favorite cloak. That's the kind of discussion they had. They didn't have a discussion where Benjamin stood up and said, Brothers, pray for me. I want to do all that I can, even if it requires me great suffering, to not tear the one flesh union that God has created. That is not how they talked about marriage. So our Lord is laying down the truth of marriage and the new creation in the kingdom where men have been restored to the image of God through the Spirit in union with Christ. And I want you to see two things he says. (coughs) Mm, So sorry. If this cough continues, I want you to see one thing he says. Notice how our Lord begins. The truth about marriage, he says, is found in Scripture. He begins with, have you not read? Have you not read? Our Lord sends the Pharisees to the Scriptures, to Genesis, even before he begins arguing with them from the creational acts of God. He sets the Scriptures as the foundation for what marriage is. And this is a great help to us as a church because we are often being pulled to pieces by this school or this tradition or this author. Our Lord Jesus helps us navigate all of this noise. He says, have you not read? If you've hung around me long enough, you know how much I love the opening of Romans 4 when Paul is talking about the doctrine of justification, he says, what do the scriptures say? I mean, the entirety of your hermeneutic and your view of tradition is solved right there. What do the scriptures say? Here again, it's similar. Have you not read? Our Lord Jesus is teaching us that the answers we are seeking about marriage, about man, about woman, are in the book, are in the word of God. Jesus is certain the answers are in the book. Have you not read, he says? He is certain the answers are in the book, the word of God, the Bible. We should be certain then that the answers are there. You will never be discovered to be a fool 
if you take all of your answers for these things from the word of God, now, among men, they might think you're a fool. But that season will soon be passed. And we will all stand before the Lord. And you will be honored for using the grace given to you to found, found all of your understanding of marriage and actions of marriage on the word of God. Our Westminster Confession starts in the very same way. And, I, and I've heard friends of mine critique the Westminster Confession because its first chapter is about scripture instead of about God. And their critique is, didn't God exist before the scriptures? And I think the answer is, absolutely, <laughs> he did. But the Westminster Confession is a very prudently ordered confession. How do we know anything that we know about God except by what he has revealed to us in his word? And so the confession prudently begins with the authority by which everything that follows is said in the confession, the scriptures. So understand that the truth about marriage is found in scripture. Number two, just one more thing tonight. The truth about marriage is revealed in what God has created. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Here our Lord is quoting from Genesis 1.27 and perhaps Genesis 5.2, but certainly Genesis 1.27. We are created beings, male and female. Two sexes, two genders, no more. Simply stated, we are not beings of self-determination. We did not bring ourselves into existence. We are not living in some open-ended universe of fluid meanings that never arrive at finality. We are created beings. We do not have to create ourselves. In fact, we must not. We must not attempt to create ourselves, for we do not have the authority, nor do we have the power to do so. Such an attempt to create ourselves would not be a creation at all, but it would be a destruction of something that is already created by another. Someone else has determined what we are, God has determined what we are to be, and he has determined what is ideal and best in creating us as we are. He has also therefore determined how we are going to best relate to all other things he has created. There is a coherence in our creation that we cannot improve upon by trying to undo or do differently what he has done. Now, beloved, what we are going to see as we proceed through our Lord's teaching here are the purposes of God in marriage. And I want you to be understanding that I am not saying that every Christian is going to end up married. I'm not even saying that every non-Christian is going to end up married. But I am saying with our Lord Jesus Christ, that marriage is as fundamental to creation as is man and woman. 
if you are even a single person, you are existing today because of a man and woman. There may be 20 footnotes under that statement about whether they were married or unmarried, whether they were sinning or not sinning, or where. If you are even a single unmarried person, you exist because of man and woman. Marriage is fundamental at the creational level. And therefore, we should guard it, defend it, understand it, and even enter into it. This is why larger catechism 139 says, undue delay of marriage is a sin. The Lord is telling us in his word that marriage is not some remote part of life. Whether you never participate in it, it is a central and foundational part of life. To be guarded and protected be prayed for, to be taught, to be encouraged. And of course, what is most wonderfully revealed in marriage? Our Lord says that every marriage is very much like a parable of a more lasting truth, the union of Christ with his church. No wonder it is so foundational to creation. For the Lord has imprinted right at the beginning a union, a one flesh union that pictures forth a union that he has with his church that will never be separated. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and our beginning on this passage of 12 verses. Lord, help us finish it. Give us all grace for what we hear. And Lord, we thank you for standing in the breach when the Pharisees sought to draw you further into their resentments and harden hearts against you. You did not shrink back, but you testified to that which was true. Even though it cost you your life, You were glad to give it, for you had come to die. And Lord, we thank you that it pleased you to give yourself for your bride, to take on all of her debts, and to make her debts your own debts, and to then be sent to a debtor's prison for her debts, the grave. And then now to rise again and enter the riches of your glory, and to give her all of your riches. Oh, Lord, we thank you and praise you for how this glorious truth of the gospel penetrates and permeates all the creation. We cannot even escape it in our own persons. We praise you and give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.